Good morning, church. My name's Jerry, if you haven't met me before. Um, I'll be bringing today's Bible reading. Today's Bible reading comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21, to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. But before I bring today's Bible reading, let me just give a quick prayer before we open God's Word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now as we continue looking towards the hope of Jesus' birth in this season, Lord, as we think about Christmas and all of our loved ones of many festive giving and, um, and receiving, Lord. Lord, we pray now this Sunday um, as you may help us and assure us through your continuing work of your Spirit to help open our eyes to the hope that withstands the test of time and nations and human sin through Jesus' birth. Lord, we pray now um, as we open your word, please guard us from any guilty unbelief or, and soften our hearts from distraction. And Lord, we pray, um, pray that you may help Pastor Ben come up to faithfully preach your word through your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you may shape us in your likeness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cool. I'll be reading from chapter 8, verse 21. Starting from verse 21. <clears throat> Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will, call, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord.
an inside job. There it is. Okay. Now we've got too much. Okay. We're good. Okay. You can hear me now. I can hear me now. Really loud. That's great. Well, good morning again if you didn't hear me the first time. <laughs> My name's Ben. Uh, great to be here bringing you God's word. Uh, excited about what we're going to be looking at this morning, but um, yeah, be warned. Uh, there's some heavy um, themes as well. Well, uh, let's get started. Uh, we, what are you looking forward to at Christmas? Uh, you had that question to discuss um, together earlier. What are some of the things that uh, you guys discussed? Uh, are you looking forward to the, the time with family and friends, looking forward to a holiday, looking forward to the good food, maybe some of the presents? Um, yeah, looking forward to endless holidays or hoping for endless holidays, um, some of the teens over there. Uh, what, what is it that we celebrate at Christmas anyway? Does it make any difference for our lives, for the rest of our life? If you're uh, new visiting with us this morning, if you're new to church, maybe you're wondering that. Why do, what is all the fuss about? What do Christians celebrate at Christmas? Uh, if you've uh, been around church for a while, maybe you're wondering, why are we doing all this again? Why are we going all this effort, uh, dressing things up, making all these plans? Um, maybe you are looking forward to Christmas. Maybe you're excited like Zeke. Maybe it's a bit of an escape, um, from a distraction from the hard realities of life. Maybe it's something you, you do for the kids' sake or for old times' sake to remember how things used to be. Or maybe you really think it's a waste of time. There might be a, might be a few Scrooges out there. Bah humbug. What's the point in dressing things up? Why even pretend that we get along with our family? Why should I care about listening to this person tell me all the things they did when I haven't been seeing them? Um, Christmas can bring all sorts of feelings to the surface, can't it? Uh, it can bring up feelings of regret or bitterness and, and disappointment. Um, as we, we think about how we'd like things to be and we're struck with the reality of how things really are. The truth is that we do live in a broken and hurting world. People reject God. People hurt each other. Innocent people suffer and evil people prosper. Our world is tainted with the darkness of pain, suffering, conflict, despair and death. But the message of Christmas has much more to say about these things than you might think. The Bible, God's Word, has much more to say about these things than you might think. The Bible acknowledges this reality, the reality of darkness in our world and in our hearts. In fact, many characters in the Bible have experienced such darkness and heartache. And we can see our experience mirrored in theirs. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So uh, we're going to uh, turn, keep, keep your Bible open to Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9. You're looking at a vision of hope. But first, darkness for God's people. Long ago in ancient Israel, God's people are experiencing darkness, experiencing darkness, and they've lost all hope. 
the prophet Isaiah, he's describing their situation, but he's also describing how bad things would soon become. They're bad, and they're going to get a lot worse. So just reading from Isaiah 8, uh, verse 21 again. This is his description of the people and what's coming. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. A sobering picture. Isaiah is actually he's delivering a prophecy of God's terrible judgment upon his disobedient people. God's people and their leaders had rejected God's ways and his messages, the prophets, who warned them again and again. You see, God had chosen the people of Israel. He'd rescued them out of Egypt. He'd brought them into the promised land. He'd given them everything and taught them the best way to live, the way to enjoy his good blessings, God's people in God's place under his rule. But they had rejected him. They had rebelled against his good rule over and over. They've broken his laws, they've run after other gods, and they've made alliances with other nations and taken on their immoral practices. God had been patient for hundreds of years. But now he sent Isaiah to say, enough is enough. They've broken. Uh, it's time for God to make things right. Time for God to uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the hired workers. And it's time for him to give his sinful, idolatrous people what they deserved. The consequences would be absolutely devastating. In our passage, Isaiah 8, the people will be distressed and hungry. There'll be famine, there'll be lack, they'll be confused, and, and they'll be enraged, cursing the king and their God, not knowing where to direct their hostility, and they'll be distressed. There'll be darkness and fearful gloom. God will withhold all of his good blessings and turn them over to their enemies. First, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. They would invade from the north, come down and plunder their land and take the survivors away into captivity, leaving only the poorest people behind to tend the land. This is a picture of a people consumed by fear, anguish, suffering, and despair. They have no hope and their only reality is darkness. Can you imagine what this would be like to know nothing but darkness and gloom? Like living in a place where the sun never rises, where natural light never dispels the darkness and gloom of nighttime. It's a bit of a picture of how God's people felt. Utter despair and fearful expectation of God's judgment without hope, without light, only darkness and gloom. Thankfully, that's not all Isaiah has to say, into the scene of utter darkness and hopelessness, the prophet has a message of hope for God's people, a vision of hope. Keep reading with me in Isaiah 9 in your Bibles. Isaiah looks ahead, past judgment, to a glorious vision of a bright future on the other side of judgment. Read with me from Isaiah 9 verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the, the northern regions uh, where the, those nations will come first to come um, to attack the land. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. 
They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. God will bless his people again. Although they will be scattered and their numbers reduced to a fraction, God will cause them to multiply and to be a great nation again. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. God's people would be freed from captivity. Their weapons of war would be destroyed. There'd be no longer any need for them. And then those, those great verses that we sung about before. For to us, a child is born. To us, the son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Hope for the future, freedom from oppression, salvation, and everlasting peace for God's people. What is this bright hope for, uh, what is this bright hope for God's people? God will send a rescuer and king to deliver his people and establish peace forever. He's a savior and a king who will bring peace. There, as we saw in uh, verse 3, their misfortunes would be reversed. Though they would be scattered, though they would be reduced in number, they would again be enlarged as a nation. They would be saved from their enemies in verse 4. Uh, the, the yoke of oppression would be shattered. And they would, there would be no more war. Um, all the tools and instruments of war would be burnt up and, and uh, got rid of because there's no longer any conflict or war. And this, this would all come through a descendant of David. You can see it in verse 7 there. Born to rule an eternal kingdom. And not just someone from David's line, but somehow, somehow someone who bears the name of God himself, mighty, someone who would be called Mighty God, and he'll be called Prince of Peace because he establishes peace and he rules with wisdom and justice and makes everything right. And this lasts forever. Everlasting peace for God's people that's guaranteed by God himself. This is incredible. A complete reversal of their situation. God graciously redefines the future of his people. It's not what they deserved. It's all of God's grace. He will preserve a remnant. He will purify and refine his people through judgment, and he will restore them and make them great again. He'll establish over them a king who will lead them in everlasting peace. There'll be no more war, no more conflict. Now, if you keep reading through Isaiah, you'll see that Isaiah has been, he will continue to describe the terrible judgment of God's way with people. It's coming. God's about to judge his own people. The full force of his wrath is going to be poured out on them. All the covenant curses for breaking his law, for rejecting God and chasing idols. But this won't be the end for God's people. He will rescue and restore his people again. On the other side of judgment, there is grace and salvation and everlasting peace. God will make everything right. And they will never have to fear or suffer again. Imagine what that would have been like for those people. In the midst of their darkness and their despair, Isaiah gives them a picture, a vision of a better future. The sun is going to rise again. Don't give up hope. It's something to hold on to in the midst of darkness and gloom that they are experiencing. This will not last forever. And for hundreds of years, that's what God's people did. They waited for him to send the promised Savior and King, the Messiah. 
the one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. That old Christmas carol we were saying earlier, I really, really like this carol, um, really captures that, that spirit, that longing. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Come and set your people free. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Well, for 700 years, not much changed. God's people were still living under the oppression of a more powerful nation. By that time, in the first century, it was Roman rule. They're desperately clinging on to their identity as God's people while they're fighting in the scraps, in the dust, for scraps in the dust of Judea. And God had been silent and distant for so long. They must have been wondering. They must have been near giving up hope. But that all changes when Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, you're probably aware of some of the amazing events that surrounded Jesus' birth, and we're going to hear more about them next week at our Christmas Eve service. Please come back, come and hear more about Christmas. But uh, we're now going to look at uh, Matthew chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, flick ahead to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel. Keep a finger in Isaiah 9 because we're coming back there. But Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Matthew is one of Jesus' close disciples and actually one of his biographers. And he writes one of the Gospels of Jesus' life. And uh, Matthew in chapter 4, he wants us to notice the significance of Jesus' movements around Judea. Stay with me. I'll show you how this links to what we've just said in, seen in Isaiah. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, we're skipping forward to when Jesus is an adult. Uh, Jesus has been baptized by John. He's been tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And now he begins his public ministry at the, the age of, right old age of about 30 years. Um, here we are in Matthew uh, chapter 4, reading from verse 12 to 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, through the first few chapters of Matthew, which include um, the announcement of Jesus' birth from the angel and the birth of Jesus in the, that, uh, that manger, in that stable, Matthew has been uh, recounting places and names. Um, he's be, uh, been tracking the movements of Jesus and his family. He tells us that they were from Nazareth. They had to come down to Bethlehem because of the census. Uh, then they had to escape to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill the newborn baby. Then after Herod died, they went back to Nazareth um, in the north, which is their hometown. And now Jesus is moving to Galilee. But the movements of Jesus and his family that Matthew records, they're not just places and dates to verify the accuracy of his account, though they are. Matthew sees these geographic movements as crucial fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. Yes, Jesus is now relocated to the region of Galilee in the north of Israel, where he begins his public ministry. But Matthew wants us to see that this means the light of the world has begun to break into the darkness and despair of God's people. Matthew wants his readers to see, he wants us to see that this signals the arrival of God's promised Messiah. The long-expected Savior and King has arrived. Now, uh, when Matthew references those two verses, they might seem a little obscure. Um, he's, 
actually wanting us to, intending us, his readers, to draw upon the full context of that passage, that full prophecy. It's a bit like when we recall a line of a song or um, a film, or we share a meme. It only makes sense because we import the whole mood or vibe of that um, song or film into, into the reference. Well, when Matthew quotes these two verses in Isaiah's prophecy, he expects us to import everything we know about the amazing promise of Isaiah 9. Matthew wants us to get that Jesus is the ray of hope piercing the darkness. His arrival signals the dawning of a new day for God's people. How does Jesus fulfill Isaiah 9? Well, he's a descendant of King David. Matthew's already shown that in in uh, his first chapter where he traces Jesus' genealogy. Um, He's God himself. Um, He's called Emmanuel by the angel, God with us, born of the Holy Spirit. And he's also heralded as the Prince of Peace. The angels, when they announce the, the news of Jesus' birth to the shepherds, they say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus has come to make peace. How does he do this? Well, it's, it's not in the way that people might have expected. Um, we, we know how it happens, but for people back then, people who'd read Isaiah's prophecy and suffered under oppression and captivity for 700 years, Many of them thought he was going to come as this great military leader who's going to deliver them from their Roman oppressors, who's going to restore the kingdom of David and Solomon. But Jesus had come to deal with an even bigger problem. You see, their greatest problem was their broken relationship with God. Our greatest problem is our broken relationship with God. We still experience the same distress, darkness, gloom, anguish, and hunger because we also reject God in his ways for our life. Maybe at times, um, not as, as fully as at other times, but it's there. It's always there, lingering, just around the edges. So Jesus comes to make peace by calling people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He calls them to turn back to God, because that's their biggest problem. That's our biggest problem. We've all rejected God. We've tried to live life our own way. We all deserve to be rejected by God, and cast into utter darkness. Jesus comes calling people to repentance, to turn back to God, and then he comes and makes it possible for us to have peace with God. Jesus willingly takes upon himself the darkness of God's judgment on his people's sin. On the cross, he experienced the weight of human sin and the wrath of God's judgment. For three hours, the whole land was covered in darkness as the light of the world suffered and died to absorb God's judgment in our place. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and confirming the promise he made that we could be forgiven and reconciled with God. Jesus has come so we can have peace with God and peace with each other. In Christ, we have been reconciled to God so we can also be reconciled to each other. The source of our sin and selfishness, our our fears and anxieties, our hurt and despair, The darkness within us, it has been dealt with on the cross, finally and completely. Jesus has taken our rejection of God and all of its consequences so we can be forgiven by God's grace as a free gift. And God can also give us what we need to extend that forgiveness and grace to people who have hurt us, people we are in conflict with. Jesus has come to bring peace to everyone between those who are previously divided by hostility. If we have been forgiven so much, then with God's help, we can forgive those who have sinned against us 
and make peace. Only Jesus can give you peace with God. Do you know this peace? You can know it today. You can know it this Christmas. Only Jesus can give us real, lasting peace. Turn back to God. Ask him to forgive you and know his peace this Christmas. If you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, are you making peace? With your friends and family, with your work colleagues, with your brothers and sisters at church and in your life group? Are you making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace? His peace toward us allows us to extend peace and reconciliation to others. And just as a pastoral aside, we're not very good at this. I'm speaking for myself here as well. Now, whether it's because your family of origin was more about maintaining harmony than resolving conflict, or whether, like me, you're conflict-averse, you're a recovering people-pleaser, and you'd rather not have those difficult conversations. We need God's help to engage in conflict and courageous conversations to enable real reconciliation and peace. It won't be easy. It might take a while. Another person might not come to the party, but God gives us everything we need to make peace through his son, Jesus Christ. So to summarize where we've been so far, the arrival of Jesus is like the dawning of the sun after the longest, blackest night. God's salvation has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. We can have real, lasting peace with God and each other. But has the glorious vision of Isaiah's prophecy really been fulfilled? Jesus has arrived, but where's that eternal kingdom and everlasting peace? Have we been shortchanged? Well, there's, there's more to come. Hope for a bright future. God's people, we know his salvation and peace with God, but we await its ultimate fulfillment when Jesus returns. We know all too well that all is not right in the world. There is conflict in different places all over the world. Our culture is tearing itself apart over matters of race and gender and sexuality. Even in our own congregation, there are people who are hurting, who are struggling with mental health issues, uh, who have recently suffered grief and loss. Peace seems further away now than it ever has been. But Jesus is coming again to make peace, deliver justice, save his people, establish everlasting peace for his people. Let's look at Isaiah 9 one more time. Those last few verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Jesus has come. He's lived. He's died. And he's risen to life, never to die again. He's uh, been exalted to heaven as God's promised king. But the fullness of that salvation and restoration of God's people is still to come. So at Christmas, we look back. But we also look forward. We look back, remember everything God has done for us in Jesus. And we look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise when Jesus returns to, make, to, make, to rule over his people forever. We celebrate the salvation and peace that Jesus has brought into the world at Christmas, but we still hope because we don't have it all yet. We don't have the fullness of it yet. We still look forward to its fulfillment 
and we wait patiently. We acknowledge the reality of this broken world, that things aren't the way they should be. There's space to lament at Christmas time, to grieve. We long for Jesus' return, but we wait with confidence, knowing that God himself has promised to bring this about. It's like the first glimpse of the sun at its rising. The land is still dark. It hasn't yet been touched by its rays, but you can see it. You can see the sun on the horizon. But soon, soon the sun will rise and all the land will be bathed with light. Soon Jesus will return and establish his eternal kingdom of never-ending peace over the whole earth. So we live in this dark, dark world, but with our eyes fixed on the horizon, sure that the sun will rise. Uh, this is something that my family's been trying to do. Uh, it doesn't look as pretty as this, some can attest. Um, as we've been reading an Advent devotion together in the lead up to Christmas. Um, every night, uh, the distractions and dramas of dinner aside, every night we read about what God has done for his people in the past. We remember how Jesus has come to save us, but we also look forward to when he will come again to make everything right. The season of Advent, the season that we're in now in the lead up to Christmas, is all about remembering that we live in between the first and second Advent, or arrival, of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. He came into the world at the first Christmas, and he will come again to bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease and fill the world with heaven's peace. So how does Christmas make a difference? Well, the coming of Jesus brings hope into our dark world. Hope for a real, lasting peace that makes us right with God and can heal and restore our broken relationships. It's a confident hope that will fulfill, uh, God will fulfill his promise to save his people and make everything right by establishing peace forever. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. It's not a naive optimism that tries to gloss over the hardships and difficulties of life, uh, the brokenness of relationships or the impression and injustice of our fallen world. It's not a quaint fairy tale, fairy tale for kids or a sentimental recollection of, of things, how they used to be when things were good in the good old days. It's not a temporary distraction or escape from the reality of life with good food and expensive presents. But at the center of Christmas, at the center of what we celebrate is a ray of hope that shines into the darkness, that pierces the brokenness and speaks to our deepest longings for a better world, better relationships, and a better life. In the coming of Jesus, hope has dawned. The first rays of sunlight have crept over the horizon. And it won't be long until the full light of day will shine over our whole world when Jesus returns as Savior and King to make everything right and establish his peace forever. Now that's a hope that can keep us going. That's a hope that can comfort us when life feels dark and overwhelming. That's a hope that provides what we need to love others and point them to the hope of Jesus. It's the only Jesus is our only hope for real and lasting peace. So this Christmas, put your hope in Jesus, the only hope we have for real and lasting peace. You can know his peace today. Talk to someone. If this is the first time you've heard about this, if you want to know more, please talk to someone you came with or someone you're sitting next to. We can know his peace today and he will help you to make peace with others. This Christmas, let's encourage each other to live in the light of the hope we have for a better future, an eternal kingdom with everlasting peace for God's people. We can be sure that God will make this happen. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Why don't you pray with me as we talk to God about what we've read.
Lord God Almighty, thank you for your incredible promise of an eternal kingdom and everlasting peace. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world to make peace, peace with you and peace with people around us. Thank you that we can have peace with you because our sins have been forgiven. This Christmas, help us to be people who make peace and maintain peace. Give us your grace and love to forgive people who have wronged us and do everything in our power to make things right. And Lord, please, please help us to hold on to the hope for real, lasting peace. Help us to live in the brightness of this hope that no darkness in this world or in our hearts or minds can overshadow. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on the horizon, knowing that the new age has dawned in the rising of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we long for that day when he will return as our mighty King to establish everlasting peace. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, in the next few moments, there's just an opportunity for you to uh, reflect on what we've heard from God's Word. Uh, please take a moment to consider what you've heard, um, to read over some of those verses again, or maybe talk to God in prayer about his, what He's laying on your heart. Mm-hmm.